Pod Academy. When we think of the stuff that dreams are made on, we might think of the spirits that Shakespeare's Prospero conjures up in The Tempest. We might think of stars, rainbows, maybe even wishing wells. But what probably doesn't leap to mind is a loaf of Wonder Bread. And yet, ever since the invention of the mass-manufactured loaf of white bread in the 1920s, that spongy, tasteless loaf has been a way in which Americans have defined themselves and one another. In his new book, White Bread, A Social History of the Store-Bought Loaf, Aaron Bobro Strain shows us how that familiar slice of white bread is much more than a food. It's a symbol, one that, in its nearly hundred-year-old existence, has come to represent, quote, the apex of modern progress and the specter of physical decay, the promise of a better future to come, and America's fall from small-town agrarian virtue, end quote. The history Bob Rose Strain tells us ranges from the immigrant bakeries of turn-of-the-century America to the Cold War to the rise of yuppie and locavore eating habits. It's a history, as he writes, of the countless social reformers, food experts, industry executives, government officials, diet gurus, and ordinary eaters who have thought that getting Americans to eat the right bread, or avoid the wrong bread, could save the world or at least restore the country's moral, physical, and social fiber. Aaron, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Eric. Well, I'm very excited to talk about this book. You're the author of White Bread, A Social History of the Store-Bought Loaf, and it's a fantastic book. It is uh, smart and intelligent and nimble, and yet it's also quite humorous and uh, just nimbly and beguiling at times. It's um, a very great read. But before we get to it, I would love to hear a little bit about what what brings you to this subject. You know, you yourself say that white bread and bread itself isn't something that people immediately think of uh, when they think of topics to take up in intellectual history or just things you notice in everyday life. Um, so what brought you to this? Yes, I think that this is a question that some of my colleagues in the politics department would love to have an answer to as well. I mean, I started off, I was hired to teach Latin American politics, global political economy and development. And I've written on that. I've written, uh, my first book was on land conflict in Chiapas. Um, and at a certain point, I um, realized that bread, which is this thing that I had been baking myself uh, for you know the better almost two decades um, was actually a really great way to get out of a lot of political questions that 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 fascinated me. Um, I started baking um, I got my first taste of real you know european style artisan bread in the Bay Area in the very early nineties and then I moved to Tucson to work on the u s mexico border and at that time, Tucson was essentially a you know an artisan bread desert. Um, so in order to keep up my bread habit, I had to learn how to bake it myself. And I got really into and obsessed with uh, the art and craft of artisan baking. Um, and then um, slowly realized that um, for, you know, the better part of four or five millennia, this, 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 this substance that I love so much, bread, um, was um, – you know, not just the cornerstone of human diets in most of the West, um, but uh, a central 
pivot point of a lot of, of cultural formations um, that armies had marched on bread and empires had risen and fallen with the bread ration. Um, you know, ask Marie Antoinette um, whether bread is political, right? You know, so much of the French Revolution wrapped up in uh, uh, bread ration questions. Um, and then as I started to get into it, I realized how much it had to say, not just about these big meta questions about politics and food, but about our very current arguments about good food, bad food, organic food, locavorism. It really hit me one day. Uh, I was early in the research process and I went to the Safeway near my campus. And I have to tell you uh, that if you write and teach about food politics in a small town, grocery stores are dangerous places. Um, you know, I see friends in the grocery store and they make a beeline in the opposite direction away from me because they're afraid I'm going to judge them about what they're buying at the store, right? I think this is, tells us something about the state of a lot of food writing today, which is a lot about moralizing about food choices. Um, but anyway, um, so there I am in the grocery store buying this loaf of, of Wonder Bread, this super fluffy Wonder Bread, you know, for research purposes. And um, of course, there's a student of mine, a food politics student of mine in the checkout counter because it's that small of a town. And, you know, he doesn't say anything. He just kind of looks at me and he looks down at the at the Wonder Bread and he just kind of gives me this look like he has caught me buying meth. <laughs> right? and, and I walk out and I kind of like I try to brush that off and I walk out and then I run into a colleague. Um, from the sciences who actually does say something. Basically, he's, you know, what are you doing with that? And, you know, I feel myself, you know, even though I, I feel myself trying to come up with explanations, like, well, you know, it's just for research purposes. I'm not actually going to eat this. Um, even though, you know, I really, you know, don't want to get into this whole thing of judging people about their food choices, but I yet found myself sucked into it. And at that moment, I realized that, you know, when our bread choices create such strong emotional reactions um, that we are talking about a lot more than just health or taste or convenience. I think that's, that's one of the wonderful things about the book and, you know, to, to orient readers to the, the nature of the, the intellectual project. Um, bread isn't just the thing itself in this book. You take it and you use it as uh, you analyze it as a symbol and even more so, so we've got this humble white bread that, uh, you know, it's not very highly thought of at our moment. Um, it's made fun of and everything else. And yet uh, the way you go at it is through the key term of the dream. Each one of your subchapters focuses on, on this dream of the white bread. And so I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you see the object of study that you've undertaken or a little more, I would say. Yeah, in some ways, I feel like the 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 loaf of fluffy white industrial bread that you pick up at a grocery store um, is kind of a, it's a, um, it's an artifact or it, it holds all of these traces of all these past utopian dreams and dystopian nightmares um, that I then try to pull out in the different sections of the book. So for example, in the early 1920s um, when bread really first begins to go in the United States from being the unruly, brownish, heterogeneous product of artisan baking, more or less unchanged in its processing, 
going back to, you know, the time of the Roman Empire to being the homogenous, uniform, fluffy white product of an assembly line. Um, at that moment, uh, the humble white loaf of, of white bread was anything but humble. It was a an edible icon of a dream of industrial progress, a, a kind of utopian vision of the conquest of scarcity through technology, um, about humans' ability to take their basic food substance and produce it in mass quantities um, in a highly perfect form. And I even talk in the book about how this uh, was a kind of intentional element of design. You can think of the, in, the, the industrial loaf of white bread as a piece of industrial design that in the 1920s, 1930s, bakery engineers actually streamlined the, the, the balloon top of the loaf, lengthened the loaf, essentially trying to make the loaf look as like a modern piece of, of art deco or streamlined design, like the, um, like the Zephyr train of food, essentially. <laughs> it's a visual uh, icon of, of the pro- possibilities of progress and modernization. I think one of the things that, that struck me the most when I started writing food history um, was the extent to which when food was just starting to be industrialized in this period, it wasn't looked down upon. It was celebrated. Um, people craved it. It, it, was, it was something that, that foretold the future. Um, and I think in this particular case, uh, you see it you know, leading the way out of kind of a world of contagion and you know, creating this, this sort of pure idea uh, of eating in America. Yeah, so part of it, part of the story of those of the early 1920s, that that key moment in the history of industrial baking, part of it is the story of aspiration and utopia and the idea of progress, but part of it is this is this, as you say, a very deep fear that white bread in that moment delivers the kind of the white middle class native born population from. So basically, in between the 1880s and the 1920s. Native-born, middle, upper-class white Americans experience this, what can only be called a moral panic over the cleanliness of their bread, right? Newspaper headlines scream things like, germs threaten your bread, you know, dangerous bakeries menace the city. There is this palpable sense that, that bread coming from the very small, very local artisanal bakeries that we romanticize today was actually this dangerous biohazard. And this is actually, it's bizarre for me to be reading this in the archives because the the more I look into the testimonies and the hearings that are held on the bread question, or the bread problem as it was called, I can't find any evidence that people are actually getting sick from the stuff, right? So what's going on? You have this massive panic, and yet no one seems to be actually getting sick from this bread. And what I, what I discover um, is that fears about dirty, contaminated bread from small bakeries had become inseparable from racial fears about the uh, supposedly dirty and dangerous Southern and Eastern European immigrants whose hands were touching that bread. And so for, for anxious consumers in the early 20th century, shining white loaves coming out of shining white factories, uh, 
kind of offered a a sense of safety and escape from um, this dark world of of threats and biohazards that had been created in this this uh, moment of racial anxiety around immigration. You know, you touch touch on going back and looking at the the court reports. Um, your process, just the sheer number of sources and archives you had to go to to piece together the story is quite unusual. And it was especially difficult for me because, you know, I my training is in Latin America. And so I essentially this was a process researching this book. It was a process of teaching myself U.S. history. Um, and what I discovered was that you can actually read a lot of U.S. history through uh, the history of what has been from the, say, the early middle 19th century all the way up till the 1960s, the single most important food uh, in the nation's diet. During that period, um, bread provides approximately 25 to 30 percent of daily calories in the average U.S. diet. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's this profoundly important food that then every major set of social reformers, um, uh, you know, food activists, different kinds of people who are interested in changing the moral or the political f- fiber of, of the nation then latch on to bread as, as one of their, their ways of talking about um, political change. So for example, so essentially what became, what was started off as a book about bread turned out to be a book about all of the different food gurus, government officials, health experts, um, uh, you know, social reformers, the 19th century versions of Michael Pollan, all those people who thought that if they could just get Americans to eat the right bread or, or maybe, you know, um, not eat the wrong bread um, it would somehow fix the moral or the social or the f- physical fact, uh, fabric of the, of the nation. Um, so this turned out to be a hugely expansive project, way bigger than I ever thought, um, that runs through a huge sweep of, of U.S. history and also takes me into all kinds of sources ranging from community cook- cookbooks to uh, – the writings of progressive era food uh, safety experts to the records of the U.S. occupation forces in post-war Japan, essentially because bread is this kind of background commodity, this this staple food that you hardly talk about. I mean, people don't write letters to their Aunt May about bread they ate this day. <laughs> Right? So as a social historian, you have to really work hard to find people talking about this incredibly important um, piece of daily life. It, it's amazing as you read the book and start to, to follow the debates that are occurring, uh, the extent to which they do sound so contemporary that it does sound like Ma- Michael Pollan out there. And, and you show that that goes all the way back to Plato's Republic uh, and he he's debating on whether or not it's good to eat the rustic bread or whether it's good to eat the processed bread. Um, so it seems it's something that it's as old as Western culture. And and the key thing in that story about Plato is, um, you know, when he sets up his interlocutor to debate about it's it's basically a debate between rural whole grain gruel versus kind of citified white cakes or loaves. And 
Um, of course, and, and the key thing is that it is not really about bread. Plato is not really concerned about the, the gastronomical question or the health question here. What he's really trying to set up is a debate about the question of whether Athens and Athenians are losing something uh, in their moral fiber um, through the process of urbanization. As they shift from rural to urban, does, has something got lost in their, in their polity? And, and so by asking that question, what kind of bread should the ideal polis eat – He's really asking a, a much bigger set of questions, and that runs through history. Um, when we when we talk about food, I think very frequently we're not really talking about food. Just as in that story from the 1920s, people were arguing about dangerous contaminated bread and food safety, but they weren't really talking about bread. They were talking about the immigration debate, the question of what the U.S. Um, racial makeup should look like. When we talk about food, we're often talking about much bigger questions. And it becomes scary as you begin to trace this out, uh, ominous even, uh, the extent to which once white bread becomes industrialized, uh, the producers that are manufacturing it um, begin to intervene in in those questions through the way that they market the bread, through the way that they they control the language in which we speak about bread. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you know once once the era of the invention begins and you you get these few corporations that are are running uh, a large portion of what the population is eating, which also sounds like a very familiar story. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces to that question. Let me um, let me try to take break it down any way you like. <laughs> um, yeah. So one thing that um, a lot of people ask me is, or, or they assume, is that the kind of I what I talk about in terms of this utopian embrace, um, this love of industrial processed bread. The assumption is that basically people were dupes of corporations. Um, and I think this is a key feature of contemporary U.S. food politics. A lot of U.S. food politics today revolves around the idea of, well, if you only knew what I, the expert, know about how the corporations are duping you about your food, you would change your ways. Right. Monsanto, you would never eat that seed. You would never eat that corn. Right. And, and I tend to, uh, you know, I, I tend to agree in the critiques of Monsanto um, and the critiques of the industrial food system, there's a lot to be said for those, and we really should be listening to them. But I think we, the, the critiques of industrial food are weakened by this attitude of, well, if you only knew what I know, you would change your ways. Uh, because that doesn't do justice to the kind of complex attachments and um, the ways in which industrial food and the embrace uh, and rejection of industrial food are wrapped up in bigger social aspirations and anxieties. And I think that's what I set out to do in this book, is to really get into that intimate relationship between uh, people and industrial eating in order to, to, to get beyond this idea of if you only knew and really try to look at what are the attachments and um, aspirations that tie us um, to our industrial food. And so it's not just a question of corporates, corporations duping, although that certainly does play into it uh, as you move on. So in the early 19th, early 20th century, that, that industrial embrace, that the utopian embrace of industrial white bread 
isn't the product of corporate duping, right? They didn't create that idea. It was it emerged out of popular culture, out of racial anxieties, out of class aspirations, a whole series of factors that I walk through. But then the industrial forces that were beginning to dominate the baking industry and consolidated into ever larger corporations, they saw that discourse of bread fear and that discourse of, of, of industrial utopia as, as a gift. And they took that gift and they ran with it and they made it one of their biggest selling points. So in the 1920s, one of the biggest selling points for bread was not, you know, taste great or just like mother's bread or homemade tasting. Um, the biggest selling uh, slogan that was used was untouched by human hands. Right. So industrial bakers were really taking that um, that fear of, of racialized fear of dirty, contaminated bread and that desire for industrial utopia um, and turning that into a, a essentially a, a strategic weapon in their effort to consolidate the baking industry into ever greater, ever larger corporations. To the point where in the late 1920s, one company, the Ward Baking Company, actually almost manages to get a corner on the entire bread industry of the United States. Essentially, is almost able to monopolize the single most important food in the American diet. Um, he is defeated by a number of progressive era activists. The Ward Baking Company is defeated by a number of progressive era uh, activists as well as the um, the FTC, but he comes very close to this uh, monopolization of the entire food industry. And what's striking is that he was stopped in the 1920s, um, but the basic impulse to monopolize and consolidate and concentrate the food system um, is very much um, still a feature of our food system today. In fact, you could probably argue that um, uh, the food system today is far more concentrated even than it was during the 1920s, which was also a great era of of monopolies. It's quite fascinating. And as you, you trace the history uh, of the humble loaf through the, the 20th century, uh, you show it's evolving not only in regard to sort of public fears, um, but also focusing in on the, the bread itself and its design and tracing the relationship between those two. So at a certain point, white bread, the white loaf becomes the enriched white bread. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that transformation. I think that was one of the you know first vocabulary words I ever learned as a child because I was pulling enriched white bread off the shelf for my mother when we went grocery shopping. And there was that Latinate term. And, and it's interesting because in its moment, uh, consumers really, when, when enriched white bread first came out, consumers didn't get the word. Um, a lot of the marketing um, surveys of the time say that, um, indicate that, you know, uh, women, for example, would avoid enriched white bread because they believe that it was more fattening than, than unenriched white bread. Um, but it's a really interesting moment, a key uh, moment in the history of bread industrialization because the enrichment of bread, which happens in the late 1930s, early 1940s, essentially saves industrial white bread from itself. So what happens is that the 10s and 20s, you see this utopian embrace of industrial white bread. The more shining, the more white, the more fluffy your loaf, the better. Um, essentially, the more bereft of nutrients, the better the bread is. Um, 
But by the 19, say 1925, you start to see considerable critique of industrial bread emerging. Lots of, of food crusaders and diet gurus and public health experts who are essentially saying that this new industrial bread is making the country fat, dumb, lazy, and sick. Um, and most terrifyingly, as World War II is looming, it's making us unfit to fight. Um, and you have to understand that the, the 1930s, the era of the Great Depression, was a nutritional disaster for the United States. As much as we try to romanticize you know, the real ingredients and the real food that people um, in great-grandmother's era or grandmother's era um, used during the Depression, this was a time when we saw massive increases in all kinds of malnutrition-related sickness – um, when the first uh, selective service uh, call was made in 1941, an enormous percentage of, of draftees were rejected um, in, uh, mo very often um, because of nutrition or malnutrition-related problems. So you've got this country that is eating a tremendous amount of nutritionally bereft industrial white bread – on the eve of war in a time of massive malnutrition in the United States and war, pan war planners panicked um, and the industrial baking industry panicked because they saw that the critiques of their product were gaining ground. Right, So there's uh, nutritionists at this moment who say that in order to fight World War II as it's looming, um, we need to um, you know, switch Americans from eating white bread to eating whole wheat bread. And there are other nutritionists who say, oh, that's not practical. Um, you know, what we need is a kind of a medium bread that's half white bread and half brown bread. A whole series of different proposals about how to solve the nutritional crisis through bread, right? Through the most important staple food. And the, what, what's, what comes out of that set of arguments is enriched white bread, which was this masterful solution for the baking industry because they're able to essentially throw in a couple tablets of compressed vitamins into their dough and with one fell swoop turn what had been a bereft uh, loaf, a nutritionally bereft loaf of white bread into a, into a weapon of, nutri of, of nutrition, uh, a, a weapon of mass nutrition. Um, <laughs> right, and very much in the early years of World War II, there's an active propaganda campaign to convince the American consumers that they have to eat enriched white bread, that they should. In fact, there's this that if you're not eating enriched white bread, you are being unpatriotic. You are not helping the war effort. And certainly if you're a mother feeding children um, uh, something other than enriched white bread, you are essentially uh, many of these uh, – Magazine articles and and different propaganda ads and um, community events argued you're essentially helping the enemy by not uh, serving enriched white bread. So you, white bread in this moment goes from being this pro product that we're starting to question, wondering, hmm, 
Have we maybe industrialized bread too much? Are there some problems with this uh, glamorous white bread product that we've created? Uh, it goes from that questioning moment to being an all-out success, right? White bread is patriotic. Enriched white bread is patriotic. Um, it builds strong bodies. It uh, is something you serve in order to make um, a stronger war-fighting nation. And white bread comes out of World War II in an incredibly – Industrial white bread comes out of World War II in an incredibly strong position um, because um, the campaign around bread enrichment has essentially annihilated all of the critiques of industrial white bread that had built up in the 1930s. And I think your mention of World War II gives us a great chance to talk about the fact that the book not only goes deep into American history um, to begin to, to trace out the dynamics between its food and its national image. Um, but it also goes global. You take us to Mexico, you take us to India, you take us to Japan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, American white bread starts to become this global phenomenon that's caught up in questions of imperialism, no less? Yeah, I talk about uh, white bread imperialism. And after World War II, um, you know, most of the world um, kind of sank into a fairly deep and multi-year period of, of famine and hunger. Europe, Asia, um, massive famine around the country, around the world, whereas the United States had survived as the the agricultural power um, with its uh, ability to provide food on a mass scale, almost unscathed if not enhanced. Um, and so in the post-war period, um, the United States realizes that food is one of its most powerful weapons. And that story about food as a weapon – um, is often told in political science and U.S. history really as a story about um, grain exports and, and kind of food aid, which it is very much. Um, but there's this other piece um, that I try to draw out, which is that um, all of the massive shipments of wheat that the United States is doing during this post-war period um, – have to be used for something. And the United States has this very strong idea that the best, most efficient use for that uh, grain is industrial white bread. Um, in fact, it's a really interesting sense because it's, it's very self-aware in one aspect, which is that none of these American policymakers are promoting industrial white bread as something that tastes good. In fact, <laughs> uh, you know, they were very... Um, uh, aware of its limitations as a as a gastronomical uh, item, but they believed that industrial white bread was efficient. It provided a nutritional weapon. It strengthened the backbone of nations against communism. And one of the places where you can really see this is in post-war Japan, occupied Japan, where um, the U.S through a number of policies, but particularly through its uh, school lunch feeding program, really sets out with the goal of transitioning Japan from being a country with rice as its staple to being a, a white bread eating country. And this is a complicated story of, of white bread imperialism um, because in many ways it wasn't forced. Um, a lot of the, the sources that I found um, – 
in the archives related to this moment show that um, Japanese school children and their parents embraced white bread with open arms. In fact, one of the biggest complaints uh, in the school feeding program was that the bread wasn't white enough. They wanted whiter bread. Um, but what's really interesting for me in that moment um, is that I, it, it, it's very revealing about the ways in which um, very particular ideas about food and nutrition get wrapped up in bigger questions um, about um, things like national security, right? Where for, for many of these U.S. occupation officials in Japan, uh, white bread was not just um, – it was not just a nutrition delivery system. It was a way of teaching the Japanese to value a modern diet, to value scientific eating, and that that pedagogical uh, aspect of bread would then help Japan be better able to stand up against communism in the long run. It almost reads as if you're, you're eating democracy in that context. Right. There are some of the, the, the letters and memos that I found were very much about how, like, you know, well, we realize that we're not really able to provide a lot of white bread. But just, you know, the, just the little acts of, of showing Japanese children, here's what a real lunch looks like. It's got white bread. It's got milk. Um, and, and that there's this sense that that um, – in fact, one, uh, one, uh, uh, one of the memos that I quote in the book, the person says that this will – enhance uh, the Japanese uh, people's democratic sensibilities um, once they've begun to eat in this rational scientific way. Well, we are going to get back to that question of the taste of white bread. But right now, we've got the impression that white bread is rising and rising. It's, it's coming out of the 20s with a lot of steam. It makes its way through the Depression. It comes out of World War II. Uh, and and we all know now that there's a fall at some point. Uh, how does that happen? When does the, the, the table start to turn for white bread? I should, probably should have said some pun about taking it off the table, but I just couldn't do it. <laughs> the, the, the collapsing dough. Yeah, well, you know, I think the first thing that to emphasize and something that really surprised me in the book is that it's not a question of of white bread, the 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 undisputed hegemony of white bread collapsing and and turning into what we have now, which is a sense where white bread is not an icon of responsible citizenship or patriotism or uh, or, or responsible uh, parenting, but rather the opposite, um, an icon of poor choices um, and poverty. Um, that is something that we see being fought back and forth through the whole history of bread industrialization. So even in the early years, the 1910s, the 1920s, I think I alluded to this before, there are very, there are still very vocal critics of white bread. Um, and in fact, many of the critics of white bread, um, in the 1920s, 1930s, um, sound very much like our own critics of white bread today. In fact, uh, Michael Pollan um, likes to throw around that slogan, um, let's see, the whiter your bread, the quicker you're dead. Um, he uses that pithy saying, but that saying actually comes from a 1920s radio food guru. 
um, who broadcasted out of Chicago. So there is a continual process of back and forth struggle over industrial bread. I don't want to give the sense that it's 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 uh, completely uh, undisputed through the middle 20th century. But I would say that the big shift takes place between, say, the mid-1960s and the mid-1980s from the trajectory between hippie and yuppie. That's where we, we really see um, the meaning of white and brown bread getting flipped 180 degrees. Um, and it's an interesting story that I think tells us a lot uh, about um, the nature of political change and economic and social change over the past um, 30 or 40 years. You know, in the 1960s, the counterculture takes up industrial processed white bread as an icon of everything that it opposes, right? White bread is plastic, it's corporate, it's tasteless, it's white. Um, and you see brown bread and brown bread baking being promoted as an act of of rebellion, of collective social change, um, a way to attack oppre- oppressive establishments. Um, you know, Beatrice Thrum Hunter, who was an influential food, whole food advocate of the 60s and 70s, said that to bake your own bread is an act of revolt against the mechanization, the corporatization of life. But, and that energy draws in a lot of young people into eating brown bread. Um, but I think that the place where we really see the switch happening is that by the 1970s, the baking industry realizes that it doesn't have to fight the counterculture on bread. It can actually take this the countercultural ideas of, of hipness and brown bread as this cool way of rebellion uh, form of rebellion and make that one of its biggest uh, most profitable sectors. Um, they, they capitalize essentially on the aura of health and youthful rebellion um, around brown 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 bread and you start to see the emergence of of, of industrialized whole wheat and health breads. And so by the Reagan years, um, collective rebellion of the 1960s had been completely folded into a more individualistic, consumer-driven self-actualization movement. Um, And for better or for worse, eating brown bread is no longer about creating larger social change. It's about improving oneself, being healthier, better looking, more successful. Um, It's a transition from a kind of collective project to a much more individualistic project and that that era between I, I like that between hippie and yuppie is also sort of the era where america starts to seriously educate itself about gastronomical questions that this becomes an issue for the middle class the question of of taste um both on the palate and what that means and how that signifies and so in prepping uh, for this interview, um, I read a review of, of the book uh, by a blogger who liked it very much, but had a question for you. So I'm going to ask the question on behalf of the blogger. She, I think it's a she, if I remember correctly, said, what about the taste question? Um, you know, the book, for, for all its insight, doesn't really address the fact that 
white bread is tasteless, but yet some of some of us, she was saying, still like the taste, still find that grilled cheese sandwich um, something that we're drawn to. So I'm curious, uh, you know, off book, uh, what your thought? What were your thoughts as you were writing on this about you know just the sheer gastronomical quality of the white bread? You know, and it's such a tricky question because, you know, a big piece of the book and the reason why I, I deliberately sidestepped that question and will probably deliberately sidestep your question <laughs> um, is because uh, I feel like uh, one of the big lessons of my research um, is that when people focus so much on the question of, you know, which is the right bread to choose? You know, what bread do you choose? How can I get people to choose the right bread? That, that notion of individual food choice, um, all too often it ends up turning into a, uh, doing more uh, kind of moralizing about how, um, others eat, um, and kind of celebrating our own supposedly virtuous food choices compared to the the problematic poor food choices of some other group um, and it ends up not doing very much to attack the underlying political and economic realities that shape and define the way we eat. so I really try to avoid the question of of what bread should we eat, what kind of bread do I eat i mean as a as a bread eater. You know, I definitely will opt for uh, an, an artisan loaf, ideally one that I have made myself, kind of a French, uh, you know, crusty, uh, beery flavored penne levain, um, or something from a local artisan bakery here in Walla Walla. Um, but that's my personal preference. And what's really interesting to me is the question of why this question of which bread is best, which bread tastes best, which bread is healthiest, which bread is, which bread is most patriotic, why uh, we get so worked up around that question. Um, that's the really interesting question for me. And that's, uh, I think, the impression that the book leaves with the reader in an absolute sense that when you're asking about what tastes good or, or what you should eat. Um, you're charging that question with just so much complexity and such a sense of identity and culture that it's never just what tastes good. Um, but what is, what that means in terms of a, a moral and ultimately kind of cultural sense. It's a wonderful, um, wonderful way to do it. So I will ask you this then if you're, if I can't pin you, um, as you see post book, uh, the story of white bread unfolding right now. What are some things you notice in this larger sense? I see very much a continuation of the same kind of trend that happens in the trajectory from hippie to yuppie, um, which is that it's that trajectory from hippie to yuppie is not just a trajectory from collective to individual, but it's also mirroring a larger shift around economic inequality in the United States, right? So in the 1960s, when, when food was mass-produced and more or less one-size-fits-all, um, you had relatively, actually historically unprecedented levels of low economic and social uh, inequality in the United States um, compared with today – where our food system has moved to one that is much more focused on niche markets, right? Where you've got, you know, 99 cent uh, industrial white bread for people who are very cost conscious 
all the way up to you know eleven dollar loaves of 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 perfect uh, French artisan bread at um, you know uh, a fancy store in New York. Um, so and 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 multiple little niches in between there, and at the same time as we have those incredible niche. Uh, food markets, we have massive and growing economic inequality in the United States. So I think that um, seen from that perspective, um, that what we're likely to see is is just, um, unfortunately, uh, a kind of deepening gaps between um, a fairly small number of people who are able to afford and access quote-unquote good food um, and large uh, mass of people who are not able to um, access good food. And I think that the most striking thing that I learned in the process of writing this about our own contemporary food politics is that food activists today over the past 15 years have, have really bought into what I would call a kind of a trickle-down vision of changing the food system, which is that a, a very small group of relatively affluent people are supposed to buy um, expensive good food, and then that demand is supposed to prime markets, and, and the benefits will eventually trickle down to the rest of us in the form of, of, of more affordable good food or more accessible good food. And the problem is that 15 years into this experiment – Right? It really hasn't happened. Um, in, uh, in fact, what we found is that the expensive good food market can coexist perfectly well with the mass bad food market. Um, in fact, sometimes it's the same company that's making a profit off of the good food and the bad food at the same time. Um, so this kind of trickle-down uh, supply-side approach to changing the food system um, I think is very much in tandem with – our focus on individual food choice um, as the way to to save the world and um, make a better food system. And I feel like the ultimate conclusion of the book is that we have to really re- rethink both that, that trickle-down model and the focus on individual food choice and think more deeply about the kinds of uh, larger structural political economic forces that give us this highly concentrated uh, two-tiered system of good food and bad food. And I think that the analysis that you've done of white bread up until that point, um, when the book concludes, uh, shows us just how you would begin to think uh, largely and on a macro level about the kinds of foods and food choices that we make. Uh, which, which leads me, I guess, to the question that comes after the end of the book, which is, where are you going now that you've told the story of white bread? Are you going back to Latin American politics? I may end up going back to Latin American politics. I mean, I, so my first book was about um, the conflict in Chiapas, Mexico, um, land conflict, violence around land claims. Um, but what I looked at was um, kind of the world of the people who are usually considered the bad guys in the conflict, which is the large um, non-indigenous coffee planters, um, and cattle ranchers. And I kind of tried to understand their perspective in this, 
this conflict. So then I went from white ranchers to white bread, um, which is also kind of a demonized object and really tried to think about, not apologize for um, the violence landowners were doing or the problems created through the industrialization of white bread, but really try to understand um, the politics of white bread in a deeper way. Um, so I do seem to have this, this fascination with um, actors that are usually considered the bad guys. Um, one idea that I've been thinking in terms of going forward with this is to really try to write a book that would get inside some of the larger food monopolies. I think that's a, a logical place um, that the book uh, ends. I mean, I think ultimately the book ends by saying, look, we need to stop moralizing about food choices and really focus on the fact that a very small number of companies control our entire food system and um, for most people in the world determine what we will be eating. Um, and that, that all the efforts around organic and locavorism um, and, and other kind of foodie politics of today don't do much to challenge that concentration and consolidation. Um, so in order to, I think, kind of take the next step after this book, it really involves trying to understand how those monopolies have been formed and what can be done to unravel them. Well, Aaron, if you decide to write it, I hope you will come back and talk with us about it. That would be wonderful. Thanks, Eric. This has been fun. Well, thank you so much for your time. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview on the New Books Network with Aaron Bobrow-Strain, author of White Bread, A Social History of the Store-Bought Loaf.